Today we're also testing new bananas. It's uh, something new that uh, our uh, dietitian uh, invented, and uh, yeah, we'll see what it brings. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 88 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about bananas. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And yes, a very quick review to get us underway today. Outstanding podcast. Five stars from Yankee Reader from the US. I found the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast over a month ago and have listened to just about all the old shows and look forward to Damien's weekly submissions. I've been racing bikes for over 20 years and I'm always looking for new ways to improve. I can't recommend a better way to learn about the ever-changing world of cycling and training. Tremendous work, Damien. You've found your niche. Thank you, Sammy. Sam, thank you very much for writing that review. It really does mean the world to me that you think so highly of the show and I'm really happy and glad that you're getting a lot from it. And definitely a reminder to you that if you do like the show, please take some time out to give me a review on iTunes or Stitcher because five stars make me go you just made my day Thank you very much. Now, a couple of great articles that I have come across this week. The first one is a study called Strength Training Improves 5-Minute All-Out Performance Following 185 Minutes of Cycling. It's a really, really good study, this one. It investigates the effects of heavy strength training on mean power output in a 5-minute all-out time trial following 185 minutes of submaximal cycling at 44% of maximal aerobic power output in well-trained cyclists. 20 well-trained cyclists were in this study and they went through their usual endurance training combined with heavy strength training or just usual endurance training only, so split into a couple of groups. The strength training performed by the endurance and the strength training group consisted of four lower body exercises and three by four tens repetition maximum, which were performed twice Twice a week for 12 weeks, the endurance plus the strength group increased their one rep max in the half squat while no change occurred in the endurance group. Also, the endurance and strength group led to greater reductions than just the endurance group in oxygen consumption, heart rate, blood lactate concentration, and the rate of perceived exertion during the last half an hour of the prolonged cycling. Further, the endurance and strength group increased the mean power output during the five-minute all-out time trial from around 371 plus or minus 9 to 400 plus or minus 13 watts, while no change occurred in the endurance group. So definitely, in conclusion, this study says that adding strength training to the usual endurance training improves leg strength and the five-minute all-out performance following 185 minutes of cycling in well-trained cyclists. Now, this study itself actually backs up something that I have found with one of my athletes from this year. And in his five-minute power, he has increased it by 20.8% over a 12-week period. Interestingly as well, his FTP went up by 10.1% in the same period because we were training endurance. But the main factor here is that we weren't really training the VO2 max area, which is the zone that the five-minute power 
comes in under. So he had this massive increase, which you can only attribute to the strength training that he was on. Also, interestingly, that his one rep maximum for squats increased by 37.5% and his Romanian deadlift increased by 57.1%. Pretty amazing stuff and very similar to the results of this study. It was done over the same type of period with two days a week in the gym. And like I said, the only on-the-bike work consisted of sub-threshold stuff, so power zone two and three with a big focus on sweet spot. His training age for cycling is quite low, but definitely the interesting thing is that he actually increased weight during the period, possibly because of the weight training, going from around 66 kilos to 67.7 when he did the test. So he has put on weight, but he's also increased the FTP and five-minute power, and you have to attribute some of that, if not pretty much all of it, to the strength training that he did do in his 12 weeks over the off-season. The second article is called A Brief History of Endurance Testing in Athletes. And while you're not going to get a specific performance gain from reading this article, and it does have a nerd factor of 0.9 attached to it, if you are a coach or an amateur physiologist or you just absolutely love your testing, then it's a good read because it covers six decades of testing beginning with the establishment of maximal oxygen consumption, VO2 max, as a valid and repeatable measure for aerobic capacity. So it starts to go through the process of how all these tests came about and what their relevance is to how you test now. And it goes on to talk about establishing the appropriate protocols and physiological indicators for aerobic measurement. The first studies that spelled out the clear relationship between high level of endurance performance and high VO2 max the first accurate cycle ergometer that was built in 1910, and the coining of the term anaerobic threshold in 64 to describe the changes in respiratory exchange ratio as a function of workload. Also, a couple of things rounding out that also goes into discussing how methods of threshold testing have changed minimally over the last three decades. And finally, the importance of work economy or efficiency as a particular predictor of endurance performance. So if you haven't fallen asleep yet, then maybe you're interested in it and I would check it out. Alrighty then, this week's Nuts and Bolts. And what are we talking about this week? How to budget your upgrades or is it even worth it? In the search for performance... Our minds always wander to bike upgrades, and I'm sure it's not just performance that we're thinking about when we're looking at those sexy wheels and how they would complement our beautiful carbon frames absolutely perfectly. But other than the fact we're going after a new set of wheels because they look good, how do you work out what to buy and what factors do you consider when you're looking at new parts? Also, when I'm talking about anything in this episode, I just want to make this quick assumption that you are eating right and you have 10% or less body fat. And if not, it's time to invest in nutrition, coaching, and maybe even a power beater. So assumptions out of the way. What areas should you target if you want real-world gains from your new purchase? If you're looking at upgrading a road bike, the first thing you look at is wheels because whether, like I said, it's a love factor or they're going to really do something, this is the first thing that pops into your head. And it could be 50 millimeter tubs or it could be super lightweight climbing wheels. Following this thought through is usually the classic battle of weight 
versus aero. And for a long time, it's been thought of that due to the extra rotational weight of bike wheels, it's best to save weight here first. And so that's one of the reasons people go to the wheels first. But I'm really here to debunk this myth. I'm not saying that it isn't entirely true when you're talking about this, but it really isn't as a significant factor as you would think. And there is an excellent article, which I'm going to reference heavily in this episode, and it's by Alex Simmons, and it's called The Sum of the Parts, where he looks at the issue of wheel mass and aerodynamics and what actually matters. If, for instances, we could assume that all other factors between two wheel sets were identical, But before he gets going, he looks at the role of rotational inertia of a wheel and its part in the performance during accelerations over and above the simple difference in wheel mass itself. So Alex references the examination of this issue by a couple of other guys, and they demonstrate how insignificant a difference in wheel rotation inertia during accelerations is. And this is relative to the other primary resistance forces encountered on a bike. So concluding and putting to rest the importance or non-importance of the rotational weight of a wheel is one can reasonably ignore the difference in moments of inertia when considering overall acceleration performance, which I 100% stand by. So without sitting here and reading out his entire article, he breaks down the relative energy demands of the various resistance forces encountered when cycling. And he breaks them down as air resistance, gravity, rolling resistance, drive train, friction losses, and changes in kinetic energy. And there is a relative importance of each resistance force as the gradient changes from flat terrain of a zero slope to a very steep 10% plus slope. As the road gets steeper, the influence of gravity takes over, and as the road flattens, then air resistance is the dominant force. When the terrain is flatter, then it's not so simple because the relationship between speed and power is not pseudo-linear, but rather it's a cubic relationship with relative airspeed, meaning that to sustain speed that is 2% faster, you'll need approximately 6% more power. So that's why aerodynamics matter so much. He also goes on to break down accelerations, which are another important part of cycling. Accelerations are a big factor in making the decision between weight and aero because it's the crucial and often the decisive part of bike racing, specifically for road and mountain biking. So using a scenario and modeling performance via analyticscycling.com, where he had a scenario of a rider accelerating from 30 kilometers an hour with an average power of 1,000 watts for 10 seconds. And using the following assumptions on the differences in key variables, he had two bikes set up slightly differently, where one bike was basically set up lighter but less aero, and the other one was set up heavier but with better aero. He made a few assumptions applying the model to the bike setups, which I won't go into, but... There was a speed difference plot, and the speed lines are closely matched, but in this scenario, the lighter, less aero wheel will lose out straight away and never actually gain an advantage, where someone on a heavier but more aero wheel will win a 10-second sprint by 60 centimetres, which is nearly a full wheel width. So Alex's conclusion after all of that, if flattish terrain is your thing and regular accelerations are part of the game, then perhaps a rethink about the relative merits of aerodynamics and weight when considering which wheels to use. So here he isn't going just for a blind weight saving. 
if we open this conversation up a little bit more and talk about the weight of everything in regards to hills, we can talk about Jim Gourlay, the author of Faster, Demystifying the Science of Triathlon Speed. He starts to touch on this. It's not just in relation to wheels, though, but the overall weight and how much power you can save. Yes, it is in terms of a triathlon, but don't hold it against me. Gawley's basic rule for whether or not an item will be a worthy investment if it saves you 10 watts or more as measured by your power meter. So a 10-watt saving is worth up to a minute over a ride of Olympic distance race, which is 25 miles or 40 kilometers, so a classic 40-kilometer time trial. As an example, he compares an aluminium bike to one decked out with all types of carbon goodies. The total weight saved is about one and a half kilos or 3.2 pounds. And then he takes a hypothetical triathlete weighing 150 pounds and has her ride two bikes up a hill at 15 miles per hour. To get to the point where a 10 watt difference becomes apparent, you need to be riding up a hill above 10% gradient and producing in excess of 400 watts, which he writes makes intuitive sense because 3.21 pounds is just over 2% of the total weight of the 150 pound cyclist and 15 pound bike. 10 watts is 2% of 500 watt power requirement to maintain speed up a 10% gradient. One and a half kilos really isn't much to drop if you're on a clunker though, but it doesn't make much sense for road riding. It only makes sense to me for mountain biking. But before we get into that, can we salvage anything for roadies? What time savings can we make with a lighter bike? Gourlay once again takes the hypothetical triathlete and she rides bikes of varying weight up different hills. While holding her power at a constant 200 watts, she rides up a one mile climb at seven different grades, one to 7%. The difference between 15, 16, 17 and 18 pound bikes with the 18 pound bike serving as the baseline. And again, air resistance is eliminated to analyze the impact of weight reduction only and how much time is saved. So if you take three pounds off your bike, pedal at a consistent rate of 200 watts and you'll get to the top of a 7% climb a whole 7.5 seconds ahead of the competition. A one pound advantage puts you at 2.5 seconds. So there is not much reason here to upgrade to lighter parts for the sake of going faster alone. There are, of course, other reasons. But overall for the roadies, your best bet is some aero wheels on flattish terrains. So how about on the mountain bike, though? The weight issue is more pertinent in the world of mountain biking, which is demonstrated by Gawley's first example, where a 10-watt advantage can be had if a climb is over 10% at 400 watts plus. To me, this is really the essence of mountain biking right here. And looking at the power files of a buddies of mine in a local marathon race over the weekend, he was cranking out over 1,100 watts on short inclines. And these weren't even pivotal moments of the race. And so 10 watts in 1,100 might seem like a drop in a bucket, but if you're hitting 10% plus climbs, 10 times a lap of a four-lap event, that could be 400 watts saved. My math is going to be out here, but you get the idea. Weight is important. But how to navigate the allure of carbon fiber bottle cages, of upgrades to carbon fiber cranks, handlebars, stems, carbon seat rails? There are a few more considerations to take into account when you think of weight alone in mountain biking. And to navigate the 
treacherous upgrade waters. I got Andy Blair from Swell Specialized Mountain Bike Team on the show to talk about his upgrading of mountain bike parts, and he actually has a system which he wrote about a few years back in the Australian Enduro magazine. So I started by asking him to give us a breakdown of how that works. Firstly, just work out what you want to do. Like, if you want to race cross-country world cups or whether you want to do European marathons that aren't very technical, you know, maybe fire roads or, you know, just have a think about how heavy you are, your riding style, how hard you are on your equipment or whatever, just to give you the bit of a, like a, just a bit of a context for it. Because you need to have that in the back of your head when you're actually coming up with the options. So that's almost just a little bit of a think that you just have to have before you start. Once you've sort of written down, yeah, you know, this is what I weigh, my riding style is aggressive or mellow or whatever, these are the races I want to do, then you go, right, I look at the bike, like sit there, look at your bike, and just go, okay, let's just create a list of everything we could change in order to save weight. So every single part of your bike, don't, don't leave anything out. Because if you want to make a bike light, you can't just do it by putting really light tyres on. You have to kind of take little bits of weight off everywhere you can in order to actually make a light bike. Because if you think about it, even the frame, which is like one of the biggest components on your bike, only contributes to about maybe 10% of the weight of the bike. So that makes you think, well, hang on, yes, having a light bike is not about necessarily the frame. You can have the heaviest frame with all the lightest components and still have a really light bike. Conversely, you can have the lightest frame and heavy components and still have a heavy bike. So you just make a list of everything and you go through it. So you go like, damn handlebars, grips, and all that stuff. And then like populate a big table in a Excel spreadsheet with all the things that you can change. And also don't miss out stuff like cutting your steer a tube down so that you don't have any excess and cutting your seat post down because they're actually the best ones because they're free. That's zero dollars per gram, obviously, to just get a hacksaw and cut your the excess seat post. So having done that and you just go through each component and come up with some alternatives. So or you need some scales really or you need to know what your stuff weighs. So you can use internet and to work that out and obviously you need to know there's a difference between claimed weight and actual weight but for the most part it's not too bad so you go okay so stem for example you might say yeah I've got this stem and it weighs 180 grams what are the options so you jump on the internet have a look at some different options and you might say right oh, there's a richie one for 100 grams but it costs this much or you can get another one for 110 grams and it costs this much and Put all that stuff in there. And also then for every component, so you go through your seat, pole seat, all that stuff, tyres and everything. And then create a column which is just dollars per gram. So you put in what the cost of the item is and what the weight difference is between your current component and your new component. And then do a column with dollars per gram. And then sort it by dollars per gram. And if you graph it, it kind of looks like a sort of um, exponential thing. Like it, it's sort of relatively cheap to, to shed a little bit of weight, but it gets progressively more expensive the more weight you shed. So you basically go through and sort of go, $0 a gram is cutting down your seat post, cutting your steerer. 
then I forget exactly what it was, but it might be like titanium rotor bolts, uh, it might be like three or four dollars a gram, a seat collar, um, some other stuff that's sort of small, but you know, you maybe have a heavy one on your bike and that don't cost too much to get a new light one, you can get some pretty good savings and then it gets up to like, I think when I did it, you know, I wanted to spend, I can't remember how much, maybe 500 bucks or whatever, and I kind of topped out the curve if you kind of get steeper, like the sand, start getting up to $10 a gram, $12 a gram, and then it's kind of like gets to the point where you're really starting to throw money away and you hit whatever threshold that you set as how much you want to actually spend. That way you're spending money where you're going to get the best bang for buck. That's basically the, the idea of it. So you're not wasting your money on, uh, say, a 90-gram stem costs $300, but a 100-gram stem costs $90. So it's probably not worth going to that next one. Oh, sorry, and the complicating thing as well, I guess, is you need to make an assessment for each line on the sheet, so it's safe for your stem, for each line, if you looked at multiple options, you need to really decide which option you would go with first. So you need to do that sort of assessment first. So when you when you do your dollars per gram column, it's only one option on each line. Otherwise, it wouldn't really work. And then the other thing is that you probably need to just go back to your original idea of why you ride and what you do and who you are and stuff because tyres is probably one that you get a really cheap saving for but you might lose the function. In fact, it's almost guaranteed one of the best things you could do would be to buy a set of tyres that weighs 350 grams and put them on because, you know, you might save over half a kilo by changing your tyres for, for 100 bucks or whatever it is. So that's a huge weight saving. But if you're going to puncture or you don't have the skill to corner on those tyres, then there's no point doing it. So there's still that subjective element to it. So we're talking weight here, and the idea is just to strip as much weight as possible, but the bit I'm fascinated about is the area of where you come in and select items based on your riding style. This is more like a gut feeling, though, because there's no real measure along the way that can say that this type of stem isn't going to work for this type of riding. How do you kind of work that out? I guess it is pretty subjective, and... You don't necessarily know what's out there, but it doesn't hurt to probably, you know, do a bit of a Google search and see what people are doing. Things like weight weenies, I think, I know they used to have these sort of registers of, of different parts with weights and stuff on there. That can be an okay place to start. But yeah, something like a stem, there's very little difference. You don't really have a stem that's so weak or light that it's going to break. You might have fiddly ones with little tiny titanium bolts that are sort of finicky and stuff but so yeah I guess it's gut feel but like something like tyres I guess would be like an easier example like I was saying it's a very easy cheap way to save weight but you can see really obviously how that could be an inappropriate choice if you went with super light tyres that didn't have any tread to save weight but then you sort of go to a race that's a bit gravelly and slippery and you know you crash or you get a flat or or you just can't corner fast then there's no point having a light bike if, if you're going to be limited in that way. So, and also, oh, I forgot to mention, another thing you probably need to talk about, and I kind of characterised the things into groups of disposable items and non-disposable items. So, stuff like a chain and a cassette, brake pads, rotors to a certain extent, tyres, 
they're disposable. So you need to also consider what's the ongoing cost of doing it. So if you get a lightweight aluminium cassette, which, you know, you can save heaps of weight by getting an aluminium cassette because they're normally made out of steel, which is obviously a lot heavier, but I'm sure they would wear a lot quicker. So you need to be aware that it's not just, you know, because it's probably a pretty high price for an exotic thing machined out of a block of aluminium, but you need to also consider that, well, hang on a sec, I go through a cassette pretty often. You don't want to kind of lock yourself into having to continually buy these disposable items to maintain that weight. Or you could just say, well, yeah, okay, it is disposable. I know that. It's, it's a lot, and I'm only going to use it on race day. So that could be another way of looking at it. But you sort of need to be aware of it. Whereas something like a, a handlebar, stem, seat pole, that sort of stuff, it's definitely going to last you a season and probably longer if you need to. So, yeah, it's sort of a one-off cost. I think the disposable thing comes down to how often you ride as well. So it comes back to that thing of selecting components based on the way you ride, the style you ride, and if you just have one race bike that you build this up in and you only use it once or twice a week, then it's a lot different to if it's your training bike that you're out on every day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, even like race stuff, for example, when I was sort of more self-supported, I used to have, you know, a chaining cassette and chain rings that was my race stuff and I'd only put it on for race day and just take it off and put the old stuff back on for training. So just as a way of kind of being able to guarantee that every time you go to a start line, you've got a fresh chaining cassette and you'd only get a few races out of it and then you'd sort of, you'd demote it down to be your training set and then keep another new one for your racing. So, And I still do that with wheels, like I just have a set of wheels that I keep for racing and, and um, train on other stuff. So just so that, you know, when you go out in the mud training um, or shitty weather or whatever it is, you sort of don't have to worry about your bearings getting a bit gritty or um, wearing out your chain of cassette. So you can be confident in your equipment every time you're in a race. You'll be able to download your own copy to see in detail what he's done here. Andy's knowledge doesn't stop here, though. I get a little sidetracked and I decide to ask him a few more questions. Let's talk about failure points for equipment because a lot of the lightweight things have weight limits on them, rider weight limits on them. You're an engineer and I'm sure you have a better understanding of the actual limits of certain materials and how far you can push them. How dangerous is it when you're using lightweight, really lightweight components in the wrong situation? Well, I mean, I guess it's sort of the answer pretty hard to pin down exactly what the danger is. I mean, if something critical fails on you while you're going at 60 k's an hour down a big hill on your road bike, then I'd say that's very dangerous. But I think for mountain biking in general, the speeds aren't that fast and like a, a sudden failure of a critical component is pretty rare. Like you normally do get some kind of warning from it. Um, and I guess, I mean, my opinion on weight limits, for example, is that they're pretty arbitrary because the way you design something as an engineer is you work out what what forces it's going to have to withstand, the strength of the material, and you put in a safety factor, which is sort of your, your margin of error for the fact that maybe one day the force could be sort of a freak of nature that's bigger than you have assumed, or that there's a flaw in the material that means that it's stronger than what the strength you've assumed is. So that sort of gives you your buffer. No one ever designs anything to break at its working load. So 
like, well, that's sort of the theory of it. But with mountain biking, you can imagine that the force that you can put in a, in a component is dependent on a lot of things and not just the right of weight. Like, if you have a big fellow that jumps on a bike to ride around the lake on a bike track, he's obviously going to be putting less force in his components than a guy that's nearly as big who's a ball of muscle and really a bit gung-ho and wants to ride his bike down big hills. So just jumping on the scales isn't a really good way of determining who should and shouldn't use certain components. So for anything like that, I think the, the real test kind of comes in terms of its durability. Like I'm just trying to think of some components that have weight limits. Say like I think Stan's wheels might have a weight limit, you know, and they're, they're quite lightweight aluminium wheels and, you know, lots of guys race on them. I have in the past. They're quite good, but you sort of, you can feel the flex in them. But then there's other components that might still have a weight limit on them, but they don't necessarily feel like they're really on the edge of, of failing. So I think the, the actual rider weight limit is pretty arbitrary and, well, I don't have to worry because I'm normally below what the weight limit is anyway, but I'm not sure I'd worry too much about it if I was on the limit of, of whatever weight was set for that component. The classic picture that I have in mind when I think of component failure is George Hincapie on the side of Roubaix with his bike in bits, the whole front half had been snapped off or whatever. Yeah. The interesting thing about that is I'm sure the process behind that is that that equipment there for a professional cyclist only has to last for one race yeah. because of the cost is it doesn't matter as much and there's all these other factors that doesn't matter and it's just the performance on the day. So just that image sort of has always stuck with me in relation to something failing but it really comes down to again like you said the first thing you have to decide is what type of riding you're going to do how you are going to ride this equipment and what type of abuse you're going to be able to dish out to it like you said just then. So definitely there's uh, a lot of different factors to consider for people that aren't getting bikes to ride for one race only. Yeah, and um, like one thing as well that I've noticed, it's not necessarily lightweight stuff that you see failing. You see heavy, cheap stuff failing too. So often it is that like good quality stuff has probably more quality control and much more tighter tolerances on their manufacturing process. So that's part of the way they're able to get the weight down by reducing the safety factor because they have more control over the process. They can more definitively say what loads this thing can handle. And so with some cheaper components, you know, they might design it with a huge safety factor because they don't have the best material, they don't have the best control or whatever. But um, if you get, you know, like a, a porosity in a weld, that's a stress razor that can cause a crack to start to propagate. And with stuff like aluminium and carbon, they fatigue. It's just that constant vibration of, of riding a bike, even though that load might be well and truly below what the limit of what that component can withstand. Fatigue kind of works in a different way. So it's kind of, it's a sub-ultimate sort of stress that accumulates over time through a lot of cycles to cause a failure and often when those kind of failures occur it is pretty sudden because it'll give way um, it'll sort of the crack will propagate to the point where it can no longer withstand the force and it'll fail can be fairly suddenly 
So, yeah, it's not necessarily yeah, the, the expensive lightweight stuff that's a problem. How about carbon in general? Do you know the lifespan of any carbon components or even carbon frames? Is there a set time frame that you should kind of replace these components? Uh, I'm not an expert on lifespan of carbon. I do know that, um, that like I said, it does fatigue. So if you do have a flaw or something, it could fatigue and crack over time, even at at quite low stress. But I think what's probably more relevant for me with carbon would be just its misuse in a lot of applications where it's not really suited. Like seat rails, carbon seat rails, I think probably, to me, that looks like a pretty silly use of carbon, especially combined with some kind of seat clamps that um, don't distribute the load very well. So carbon is only strong, like in tension, in, in one direction. Um, whereas something like a block of metal is anisotropic, it's got, it can withstand force in all different directions. So something with really complicated loading on it, like forces in different directions, like maybe a suspension linkage or, uh, uh, yeah, even maybe like the rails of, of a saddle, it's probably better to have like metal used for that application because it's just better suited to the kind of loading that it's got. But I think it's a really good material for, for a lot of bike applications. People probably, I think at first, were rightly fairly slow to sort of trust carbon for certain applications, but, um, but it's been around for a long time now, and uh, although probably a lot of carbon things have failed, I think people have got a lot of confidence that it can be good. And in certain applications, from an engineering point of view, like for a frame, for example, it's a perfect material because it's universally moldable. You can make any shape, so you can actually tune a frame to have the exact characteristics that you want by doing the layer in a certain way so that it's strong in the directions where you need to oppose the biggest forces. Um, and you can even sort of build in flex to it in certain places, in certain directions where you want to absorb vibration but don't want to lose stiffness or pedaling efficiency or something. So like overall really good product, really good material. How about in relation to carbon wheels on a mountain bike? Do you use them or have you used them and what do you think about them? Yeah, um, I was a bit sceptical at first um, when I got my first set of carbon wheels, but I'm definitely sold on it now. You know, like I used to use lightweight aluminium wheels and especially when 29ers came about, they were certainly really flexible and I folded a few front wheels kind of using lightweight aluminium 29er wheels. Like, I guess 29ers, it's more obvious because the, the bigger diameter sort of you lose a bit of stiffness. Like the hub width is still the same, so the triangle that the, the spokes make is a bit narrower and therefore not as stiff. But, um, but yeah, going to carbon wheels, I, I felt straight away were a very comparable sort of weight. They're a lot stiffer, and um, I think that really, for me, sort of made... 29ers work a lot better for me because I never felt then like cornering really hard that I might fold the front wheel underneath me and so that level of confidence and stiffness that you get for a product that's pretty much the same weight makes it worth the risk of having a failure with carbon where you know you could crack a rim and get a flat because of it or whatever and, and the expense of having to replace the rim I guess is, is sort of a real thing for a lot of people but yeah I've found like I've had them for a years now and they're pretty reliable I've cracked a couple of rims and I guess one thing it's probably fair to say would be that if you bottom out your tire on a um, on an alloy rim it's more likely to dent 
And so I think maybe you're less likely to flash because you just dint the rim and not puncture the tyre. But with carbon, the rims don't really yield so much, so you may be more likely to flat if you bottom it out. But, yeah, I think the benefits definitely outweigh those sort of problems. To me, rims are sort of semi-disposable, I guess. If you if you get a rock with one and you break it, then you probably need to replace it. If you have other rims, it's probably a bit easier to, to replace and a lot less cost. But, yeah, I reckon the ride quality of carbon rims is better, so for me, that's a good choice. I think definitely the introduction of carbon rims into mountain biking meant that 29ers could take off because previous to that, the biggest complaint I heard about 29ers was that the wheels were too heavy. Whether it was strength as well, that's why it's interesting to hear you talk about the strength of the wheel as one of the most important factors. But initially, they were pretty heavy, clumsy bikes to kind of get around a trail. But I guess with the um, with the introduction of the carbon, then it's weight plus it's that extra stiffness that gives you the responsiveness plus the advantages of a larger wheel overall. But when it comes to mountain bike wheels, tubulars are the thing that really haven't taken off. And I guess a lot of factors come down to that. You know, it's expense, it's pain in the ass sort of setting them up, it's the potential of flats if you're riding anything other than like cross-country Olympic distance. But what's your opinion on tubulars for mountain biking? Well, I actually, I really wanted them for a number of years. I saw guys like Nino Scherter and Florian Vogel riding them in Europe and I've ridden them a few times myself and, you know, they feel awesome. You can run low pressure, particularly on rooty courses that are really slippery and wet. Being able to run lower pressures helps the tyres grip to roots and things like that. So I think they've got their place in terms of like those type of courses where you really want traction. I mean, weight-wise, they're, they're good. Puncture-wise, they're pretty good. I think, like, obviously you've got a tube in there that's uh, sort of built into the tyre. Um, but the shape of the rim is kind of such that you do have a bit more air volume um, protecting you before you bottom out a rim. And it's not like, you know, a normal clincher is going to do a snake bite in a tube. A uh, tubular rim has a much mellow profile than a, than a clincher that's less likely to, to puncture so like I have ridden them before and, and slammed the rear wheel into a rock and fell at the bottom out on the rim and thought oh man I'm going to be getting a flat here for sure but um, but it didn't puncture so I think yeah the profile kind of is a bit better than you think for puncture resistance even though you do have a tube but having said that yeah like I was keen to get them but, um, but kind of looked into it and had a couple of mates using them at home here in Australia and I think part of the issue there is that our courses are in general really rocky. So there's certain race courses that even doing a cross-country race, say in somewhere like Adelaide or or here in Canberra, Mount Stromlo, they're pretty rocky with some pretty fast descents and some heavy braking. Like I'm actually finding like I'll completely destroy a rear tyre in an hour and a half race. Like it'll just be completely shredded with like kind of undercuts on the knobs and things. So I thought about that and thought, well... If I was to get tubulars, I'd be re-gluing tyres all the time. So I think it's probably the kind of thing that might be good to have in your garage or if you go to Europe to take one set over with you. But I think just in general, the maintenance of having to do that, if you can only get one race out of a tyre on a, on a real rough course, I think it's probably not worth the hassle. So in the end, I never really bothered with it. Yeah, it seems like too much of a pain in the ass for me. Yeah, I think so. And also like puncture resistance for thorns. So I don't know if that's a big problem in other countries, but there's some places in Australia where you just get those cat's heads or whatever in your tyres. 
and you have to run tubeless with latex, otherwise it's just not going to work. Like even UST without sealant's not going to work either because um, yeah, you need something in there that's going to seal it up. Cool. Well, we've covered a lot of ground and kind of gone off on little tangents, which has been interesting today. Andy, where can people find out more about you? Probably my, my website would be the best way, which is andy.swellspecialised.com. That's the sort of blog that I write about my races and that, so people can see where I'm up to, and um, I think there's a link for contact on there. He is talking about. So if you go to semiprocycling.com forward slash upgrade, you'll be able to have a look at it and do this for yourself. So there you have it. Lots of things to consider here. And it may not be as clear cut as I make it out to be, but my point here really is to spend the time investigating why and what you buy. And you won't be throwing dollars down the drain. So now the tech hacks and product section. And this week, I'm talking about a product and it's a bit of a tech as well because it's called myoglobal.com and it's the MyoLink heart rate band. What it is, it's a heart rate monitor wristband that transmits continuous heart rate data to fitness apps via Bluetooth 4 and Ant Plus. But that is not the exciting stuff. That's a little bit pedestrian. The exciting stuff is it's a band that replaces your chest strap and it gets your heart rate through LED lights and an electrical optical cell that senses the volume of the blood under the skin to measure your heart rate, which is super cool new technology. Also, it acts as a bridge between Ant Plus and Bluetooth. If you don't know what that is, then you don't need to know what that is. But trust me when I say it is cool and there aren't many things on the market that can do that. So having a wristband that can do all of this is pretty exciting to me. I'm looking forward to it because I think the main advantage is definitely ditching that chest strap and I'll be trying to get my hands on one as soon as possible. And now that quote from the top of the show, it's giant Shimano rider Bert DeBacker testing out tech for the Tour de Flanders, 27 millimeter tires and a new giant Defy. 27 millimeter tires these guys are balling on the big stuff and that's it for me this week you have been listening to the semi-pro performance podcast remember to head over to wheelhouse.cc if you want advice on what you should buy next or to invest in the ultimate upgrade for your riding coaching till next week though get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into Yesterday evening, um, Dries told me that the Koppenberg is very hard, for sure it's very hard. And uh, actually we came to a challenge that uh, I have to try to get on the Koppenberg on the big ring. Uh, the sad thing, it's uh, a bit wet, so yesterday actually I had uh, I added uh, a circumstance that would be dry. So, but anyway, I try. I have a small excuse maybe, and it's maybe lucky. I have the small excuse with uh, a bit wet roads, but it's uh, now 10 o'clock, so we were there not within the first two hours, so I still have hope it will work, and I'll do it, so uh, let's go for it. Almost Kappenburg, so um, big secret is coming.